Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me on the sofa this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to have joining us down the line, Spike columnist and founder of the Equiano Project, Inaya Follerin Iman. Hi. So coming up in today's show, the violent turn in trans activism, the madness of Hamza Youssef and the tyranny of net zero. So I think it's fair to say there's been a few incidents in the past week or so that have confirmed what we kind of knew about trans activism. Firstly, that it's irrational. Secondly, that it's misogynistic. And thirdly, that it has a propensity or a willingness to sort of flirt with violence. First off, let's talk a little bit about um, the Kelly J. Keane incident in Auckland, New Zealand. So Kelly J. Keane, also known as Posey Parker, was hounded by a trans activist mob, uh, was af- afraid of her life. She was, you know, almost crushed. She was. She had liquid porn over her. I mean, Tom, how the hell do you explain these kinds of scenes in the 21st century where essentially you have a woman organising an event called Let Women Speak, mm-hmm. just wanting women to talk about their experiences and it's being attacked? Well, I think it's relatively easy to explain as far as I think it's misogyny which is driving all of this. And I think the thing that makes it difficult for people to understand that is because this is a misogyny that is posing as progressive effectively. But when you see scenes of men stopping women from speaking in public Mm. about their own rights and their own experiences, Um, men physically accosting women for daring to air those rights, hurling sexualized insults at them and so on. I don't think you can call this anything other than misogyny. I think what trans activism has done and the extreme fringes of it is that it seems to have rehabilitated a kind of woke misogyny, a kind of acceptable Mm. misogyny, um, which is not subtle at all in the way that it expresses itself. Um, I'm sure we'll go into some of the some of the details about what happened in in New Zealand as well as Australia, but also this, as you suggest, this doesn't happen in a vacuum either. So, essentially, the on the same weekend that there were these scenes in Auckland, which the images of which have gone around the world now, there was almost like a mini Auckland going on. It's in Hyde Park, yeah. Speaker's Corner, which is where these Let Women Speak events have a monthly end of the month event, essentially. And you had again in the kind of drizzling rain a small group of gender critical women mm. again organized there to to do their thing to speak and so on surrounded by a group of trans activists who were chanting the only good nazi is a dead one so just go kill yourself yeah meanwhile you've got police who for a brief time form a pretty thin barrier around these women and then the film departing and, and walking off um again you're seeing that intense dehumanization mm. intimidation violent rhetoric there was no violence on that particular day i should say but uh we have seen violence around a lot of gender critical events in the uk in recent years i mean in speaker's corner itself back in 2017 this is one of the things i think woke a lot of people up to what was going on with this particular form of activism you had a 60 year old woman called maria mclaughlin who was waiting to go and see a gender critical event that was the meeting point they were then going to go to the venue instantly because it had been cancelled elsewhere uh and a 26 year old male trans activist transgender identified person uh punched this 60 year old woman in the face um again when you see things like this what other can you call it than misogyny but there seems to be a lot of people who are still very much invested in trying to present this as the new civil rights movement which yeah. clearly is anything but you know i mean what have you made of the sort of rhetoric surrounding this the sort of demonization of these women i mean they've uh, obviously everyone's familiar with the word turf some people have sort of reclaimed that, but Kelly J. Keane was consistently referred to as a Nazi um, by both the media and by 
top politicians in Australia, including the Victoria Premier Dan Andrews, or at least they tried to make that association between them and, and Nazis. I mean, isn't, doesn't that invite this kind of or encourage this kind of response? Well, I mean, it just shows how lost in perspective um, this debate has come, particularly driven by the uh, trans activist side. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalists you know, preaching uh, violence and, and hate and misogyny. This isn't, you know, neo-Nazis and far-right extremists you know, going around internationally to, to kind of bring people to their cause. It's primarily women mm. uh, talking about um, views and promoting a particular view that uh, sex is real and it's binary and that we should consider and protect uh female spaces, female-only spaces, and, and and not relax the laws that are being kind of advocated to make it easy for people to essentially self-identify as a different gender and have access to all of the rights and protections and privileges that uh, many women have fought for, um, for their own safety for the last kind of century or so. I mean, this is a, a, a completely normal, a completely mainstream view, and one that I would argue, and many of the, m- most people, uh, agree with yeah uh, this is not a fringe perspective and i think it just shows how completely detached um and insular many of these activists have become but the complete cowardice and license that many uh politicians and senior figures in australia and other parts of the political and cultural media elites um are, are siding with people completely at odds and contemptuous of of, of the views of the majority and i think it is a huge uh, indictment, incredibly sad, and no wonder so many people continue to feel scared to talk about this in a because if this is what potentially can happen, and you know, Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keane, she's not you know any shrinking violet. Yeah, she's not. She's of course provocative, but that is absolutely her right in a very live and real debate that's going on about these issues. So I think the way that she's been treated is, is completely disgusting. I mean, ultimately the most provocative allegedly thing that she's saying is that men can't become women. That is sort of the, that's the end point of, of, Mm. of the argument. And she expresses that in a more, in in just a very forthright way, which Mm. people can't seem to handle. No, exactly. And I think that's in a way is the genius of her activism is that what she is saying and what she is, setting out to do is so seemingly straightforward you know Mm. a t-shirt that says woman adult human female an event that says let women speak again these events she's replicated them across the uk and the us where she sets up she addresses the crowd and just invites women up to say their piece this is then met by a response which is how dare you do that you witch i mean it's this yeah it is it's really flushed out those kind of um that nascent sort of bigotry which exists on the trans activist set um and i think what we're now seeing probably as a consequence of the fact that there has been a tremendous pushback led by a lot of gender critical activists as well as you know everything from athletics bodies and so on to this ideology that you feel like it's becoming increasingly enraged increasingly irrational mm. um, and there's something going on here where this kind of this grievance politics which has been developing not just within the gender ideology kind of discussion not just within the trans activist set which of course we should always distinguish from trans people themselves but in, in identity politics more broadly, where you have extreme narratives of victimhood, yeah. such as that you hear bandied around, like the idea that people like gender-critical activists or whatever are engaged in effectively a kind of genocidal campaign against trans people by showing mm. up and wanting to say their piece. The idea that um, 
again, this oppression of that particular community is so intense as to effectively amount to a kind of crime against humanity. Um, that's a pretty alarmist and intense kind of argument in itself. The problem is it does have is is legitimised by kind of institutions in society that should know better yeah uh, or at least it's definitely not pushed back on sufficiently so you have that being kind of fed and then particularly because this is such a illiberal irrational movement that not only doesn't want to engage in argument seems incapable of engaging in argument you also see this resorting to violence um and i think that's one thing that we need to be really clear on and, and i has already already touched on this which is that the the, the demonization is also something that we need to be it's, it's obviously feeding the violence yeah. as well if you call someone a nazi you are saying that they are fair play, that they are effectively dehumanised. Yeah. You know, the, the, they're fair play to be beaten up, to be attacked in that kind of way. That they're, It's this very clear dynamic now, which is to say that this over-the-top rhetoric is not just over-the-top in and of itself. You know, it's something which is really feeding some of the, the incredibly febrile atmosphere that we're seeing. And again, this is something which isn't being challenged nearly enough. If anything, mm. it continues to be indulged. You certainly saw it in Australia and New Zealand where you saw mainstream publications repeating this slur happily, yeah. contributing to the demonization, putting a target on these women's backs. And that's something that has really got to stop. I think people have really got to be called out on those kind of comparisons, not because it's ahistorical and lazy and deeply offensive to the experience of the Nazis and the Holocaust and so on, but just because of the fact we know what game is being played here yeah. and it has very dangerous consequences. We should um, move on to talk a little bit about the Nashville shooting, mm. horrific school shooting. Six people have died, three children have died, um, killed by uh, Aubrey Hale, 28-year-old woman who identifies as male. Now, at the moment, there isn't any suggestion or we don't know um, what the motive is, whether that had anything to do with um, this woman's trans identity. A manifesto will be released. But I think we can start to talk about the atmosphere around it, some of the reaction. I mean, particularly in the mainstream press, there's been this sense that... Um, you know, this killing is really bad news for trans people, even though they were not the victims here. I mean, what have you made of that kind of response? Well, it's been striking as far as I think a lot of arguments that people would make in other contexts they're not making here. One of which is that you've seen a pretty strong pushback from various kind of LGBT organisations, which is to say that the manifesto, which we know does exist, we just don't know yeah. what's in it yet. There's been some slightly cryptic comments from the police chief there in Nashville suggesting that there was this could have been fueled by resentment of some kind to do mm. with the school which was a religious school which Audrey Hale herself attended when she was a child but all that's been very vague and obviously we shouldn't comment on that until we know the full details of it but there's been explicit calls to say don't release the manifesto yeah now there's always a big ethical discussion about how much you should platform the individual let alone their ideas in a situation when they've just committed a mass atrocity but these are arguments that people wouldn't make in other situations so I think that's pretty telling there's also been a bit of a um, in many mainstream American publications to suddenly talk about how this is again to stoke the fears of backlash as yeah. well to talk about this in terms of there was a you know a, a report I think it was NBC talking about a, a, a drag queen who was now hiring eight armed guards rather than three and it's not to, that you want to discount their own particular feelings in this situation it's just to say do we really want to be in a situation where six people have just been killed three of which are children without even wanting to speculate on the motives and so on that this is now flips into this very narrow discussion about fears of a backlash because there is this assumption that people are so easily mm. ticked off um, by events that they will lose all sense of humanity and then just go and lash out innocent people. 
again, we need to kind of get past that. But then there's also kind of this response and one needs to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. But, you know, the, the way in some of the kind of more extreme parts of the transactivist sphere, where again, it's just you, st- you still see a kind of continuation of like this very um, quite aggressive rhetoric, you know, people posing with weaponry and so on, even in the wake of a shooting like this. So it's stirred up a lot of double standards, shall we say, in terms of atrocious acts of violence discussed in very different ways, depending essentially on the identity of the perpetrator and what their purported motives might be, which is incredibly unseemly. But I think um, has also just demonstrated that everything is kind of viewed through that particular lens in a way that I think not only gets people ahead of themselves in commenting on certain things, but also gets us away from what is actually the tragedy that has actually taken place there, I suppose. I saw some really horrific videos posted by um, uh, libs of TikTok with some, uh, I assume, uh, extreme activists, essentially uh, saying things that I wouldn't even really like to repeat, almost uh, apologism for uh, the, the horrific and horrendous act of violence that has taken place. And it really just shows that how, how can people even be brave enough, really, to post their face and say such horrible things and and think that actually they live in a culture and a society that there's not going to be any real consequences for that because um, the 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 zeitgeist is on their side yeah. that actually if you uh, transgress or are perceived to have transgressed against certain um, ideas around around gender, then you can the, the consequences are, are are fair game as we kind of talked about earlier. And I think it just exposed. Um, just how far certain people are willing to make these kinds of arguments. And on top of that, it, gender ideology, it reveals, again, the, the, the way that it obscures facts and reporting. I mean, when this first came out, I was just trying to understand what had happened. And some people said it was a trans man. Some people said it was a trans woman, a female, a male. It, I had no idea what even the emergent facts were happening and in that we can't actually know the truth and the reality of what's gone on and that is you know devastating for for the victims and the family and and actually understanding that the the actual full scope of the situation so yeah i just think that you know obviously more facts will will emerge as the kind of days and, and weeks and we have to be kind of careful about about what we say you know in this situation but some of the the really divisive reaction um, has been just incredibly telling about how where we're at when it comes to this conversation. And just to tack onto that as well, I think even when you've got outside of the more extremes of this debate and what they've been saying on social media and so on, it's even been very interesting to see some of the mainstream discussion, which will pivot away from talking about this particular attack to laws that have been passed mm. in Tennessee around clamping down on gender affirming care for young people or um, restrictions on drag queen events, particularly ones that are held in public buildings and so on. That is an implied contextualization justification of what yeah. it is that we've seen, even in the absence of any motive. And I think that's that kind of narrative, even when it's expressed slightly more subtly, mm. should still deeply disgust us, I think, basically. So this week, Hamza Youssef was voted as the new leader of the SNP and becomes the first minister of Scotland, replacing Nicola Sturgeon. He beat his rival, Kate Forbes, by um, 52 to 48 after second preference votes, the golden ratio or cursed ratio, uh, depending on your opinion. 
Tom, he should have done a lot better, really. I mean, I know I know he won, obviously, mm-hmm. but considering that this is a man who had the fulsome backing of the SNP establishment and his rival, Kate Forbes, was utterly demonised, mm-hmm. shouldn't he really have walked it a lot more? Well, that in that sense, it's very interesting because the, the result on paper doesn't looks like exactly what everyone would thought he was the continuity candidate yeah he was essentially Sturgeon's handpicked successor she didn't quite say that but it was made very clear by the actions of her allies in the mm. last few days of the campaign you saw john swinney her um depart her outgoing sort of deputy throw his lot in with humza which upset many people in the kate forbes camp um you also it was it was no it was the there was worst kept secret in edinburgh that it, yeah uh, humza Yusuf was obviously that that guy um but again, this is something that's been striking throughout the campaign is that to an extent, whilst Nicola Sturgeon maintained a very tight grip on her particular party, Sturgeonism, such as it is, is, mm. is not. Um, and in her absence, it seems like he's finding it incredibly difficult to kind of pick up that mantle so much so that, as you say, even in a SNP leadership race with a party membership that we were told was so incredibly socially liberal, but which they kind of mean woke and intolerant <laughs> yeah. they couldn't possibly um countenance someone like kate forbes a socially yeah. conservative christian being anywhere near butte house that it became incredibly close that they seemingly largely rejected that demonization that that pretty concerted campaign suggested that she was an illegitimate candidate to, mm. to lead this particular party um completely failed so whilst um the result wasn't that surprising i think it it showed us that um, these ideas, um, the ideas that have really derailed the kind of SNP campaign, this weddedness to this woke intolerance, um, the the general kind of failures of the kind of tight clique yeah. around Sturgeon, the, even, even the SNP sort of selectorate are seemingly starting to tire and break away from that. So very interesting on that from. Definitely. And, and I, what do you make of Hamza? You excited for his uh, leadership? Well, I mean, as someone who broadly thinks that we you know the union is a good thing i think he's a great um asset (laughs) the unionist cause i mean he's really got nothing you know just nothing he he said the first thing he's going to do his principal mission is to enact this uh gender self-id law which is the very thing that brought down his predecessor not not dealing with you know the the drugs deaths in scotland the crisis in education, the cost of living issues that all of us are facing, you know, issues around energy and and, and security and so on. Actually, very big challenges, um, I would say, that, you know, Scotland has it, including the rest of the United Kingdom. His, his principal issue is is this gender self-ID. And I just think, um, I just think it's really embarrassing. I mean, there is some hope, you know, it's great to see that actually, I mean, even though she had her, her flaws, it's it's good to see that forty eight percent of um, S and B voters were willing to uh, change tack and, and and do something different. But it just tells you that how little wind is really left in this um, kind of SNP Scottish independence cause. It's not based off of you know, a radical um, transformative vision that um, you know, democratic and and sovereign mm. um it, it's it's really off just this kind of very boring predictable uh tried and tested and failed kind of progressive so-called progressive agenda um that is deeply anti-democratic and doesn't actually address any of the kind of genuine material concerns that 
that um, people have in society and and it's based off of so much of a kind of grievance politics mm. um so i think you know he he wants to take that cause on um i i wish him good luck um <laughs> but you know i doubt i doubt it's going to um inspire many scottish voters or, or bring him the the independence that apparently they want what well, i mean one thing people, a lot of people have suggested is that um hamza is someone who's sort of failed upwards mm. given his terrible record across pretty much every ministry he's been in whether it's transport health justice and he's quite a gaff prone mm. politician um probably the best gaff recently was uh, during the campaign was when he spoke to um a bunch of ukrainian women and asked them where the men were mm. um I think, think about that. Think about <laughs> it. think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, did, did he mean that as a joke? I mean, it was one in a long line. I mean, the scooter is a personal <laughs> favourite. Yeah, oh it's when he'd hurt his ankle and he was he was rolling around in this little knee scooter. And then reportedly, from what you hear, uh, he saw the camera up ahead and wanted to show off a bit. <laughs> then falls off the scooter, then gets upset that the BBC tweeted the video. Well, exactly. It made 10 times funnier by him getting angry about it, <laughs> about people sharing it on social media. It is that reminder that he is sort of um, all the dreadful policies of the Sturgeon era with none of the polish. I mean, he's just such a bungler. And it is <laughs> constantly quite amusing. I mean, the other thing, of course, and we spoke about this last time we spoke about him, but that speech he gave in Holyrood where he essentially denounced the fact that the the holders of of high office across Scotland were all white. He kind of listed yeah. them off. The Lord Advocate, white, every <laughs> police... Um, Chief Inspector White and so on. I mean, Scotland is a very white country, yeah. like much more than England, <laughs> and yet this apparently hadn't really dawned on him. So you do hope that all of these things will stand uh, again. That the, the health of politics across the the UK in, in good stead. I think it is nevertheless important to count against complacency, particularly those of us who oppose Scottish secession for all the reasons that I was talking about. Um, the fact that no one's still really talking about the SNP not being the largest party at the next yeah. election in Scotland. Yeah. Um, it's it's vice-like grip for a long time, which I think has been shown to be a lot weaker than people were given to uh, were given to think. Um, is nevertheless pretty significant. Um, and that's something which I think there's there can be no, as I say, complacency when it comes to taking yeah. itself. A lot over the course of the past six months, a lot of that is rotten about both the SNP machine and the independent project underneath there under their kind of stewardship has been brought out into the open but the job surely isn't done in terms of pushing that back quite Def firmly definitely in terms of the rottenness it is worth you know <laughs> reminding people that the uh, chief executive of the SNP resigned in the middle of this campaign Pete Morrill um who's also Nicholas Surgeon, hus Surgeon's husband mm -hmm. um which shows you the kind of um, cliqueishness yeah. of, of the party he had to resign because he was allegedly giving false um membership statistics you know there's been a huge drop in membership since both the sort of failed supreme court challenge and since the obviously infamous gender recognition act um, and so it was interesting that lots of people who would have resigned, would have tired of um, Nicola Sturgeon's inability to get independence over the line. Maybe those people have gone to sort of at the Alba party, which is a bit more hard line on this. And those people who um, will have left over the gender recognition bill, still many of them um, not backing um, the obvious candidate for um, who represents that that kind of cause. Um, we should briefly mention the prayer, the famous um, prayer um, selfie that Hamza Yusuf released on, the, on his first day in Butte House. I mean, Anayv, what have you made of the uh, reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, it, is, it just reveals that the double standard, you know, I, I mean, Kate Forbes 
um, as we know, was seriously you know, scrutinised uh, and, and criticised very strongly uh, for holding uh, the views that she had, her kind of traditional uh, Christian views, the Free Church of Scotland, um, and uh, Hamza Yusuf uh, praying, which, no, he, he has a right to do, but in an all-male all, all male prayer, um, what was lauded and praised um, in this in this wonderful way, but we fully know that if Kate Forbes did the same thing, um, that you know people probably would have said all sorts of horrible things um, about her and, and what she's doing, and it it really does show the double standards about how we treat um, some religions that on the kind of hierarchy of of um, identity mm. and hierarchy of victimhood can claim greater kind of moral. Um, and cultural superiority um, over others, and and the the double standard really highlighted that. And it's also worth stressing as well. Brenda made this point in his piece about this this week, which is that this hierarchy is also amongst ethnic minority groups and minority yeah. religions as well. So Rishi Sunak being a practicing Hindu, even having little Ganesha on his on his desk at work and so on, uh, you didn't see the there was a, there was a kind of bit of residual sort of gushing over representation and so on it didn't last very long but certainly from the left the response you got was that he's a water carrier for again hindu nationalism hindu nationalism linked up with white supremacy these are the kinds of arguments you see on that particular part of politics so this kind of hierarchy of what identities are um, deemed to be celebratory and so on is very much there and also if we're being honest a lot of this just cuts down politically like if a particular ethnic minority has the wrong kind of politics then they can quickly be cast out of the um Again, it's got community of the good very mm. quickly. Yeah, and it, it just shows just how tedious and tiresome the politics of identity are. I mean, it, Hamza Youssef, his position as the, the leader of, of Scotland is an incredibly consequential position for um, you know, everyday Scottish people in terms of what kinds of things, what vision does he have for Scottish society? How does, what, what's his track record and how is he going to implement and, and, and makes Scotland a more freer and prosperous society. You know, th- those really important questions about his, his politics and his and his actual ability mm. are completely sidelined and, and kiboshed in favour of um, very shallow celebrations about uh, his skin colour or you know, his how he expresses his religion. Like, what what are the the real questions that hold him to account, keep him on his toes, and make sure that he actually does a good job? But identity politics washes over all of those things, and um, if you sing the right notes and and wear the right things, and that's all. That's all that that matters. So finally, let's talk about net zero. The UK government has relaunched its plans for net zero. It was essentially ordered to by the courts, who decided that it, its plans were not detailed enough. Mm. I mean. A lot of what has been announced we've seen before. So we've got a renewed commitment to renewable energy as well as some nuclear energy thrown in there. Um, We're still planning to ban gas boilers and replace them with heat pumps. We're going to not have um, petrol cars anymore. And they're all going to be replaced with um, electric cars. It's going to be lots of home insulation, all the the usual stuff. Um, But Tom, you know, we're in the middle of an energy crisis still. People are still um, really feeling the pinch. I mean, why is net zero still going ahead? I think it's because it's just now an unshakable part of elite orthodoxy. I don't think they could shake it even if they wanted to at this point. Um, it's a fascinating spectacle of the courts effectively demanding a more detailed plan for eco-austerity from the, the government. Um, but you're also getting that from all kinds of other 
forms of elite power and influence, whether mm. it's the cop circus or whether it's just the mainstream elite media or whatever. Again, the constant pressure being exerted upon them to again usher in eco-austerity quicker and in a more detailed fashion than they've otherwise laid out. And it's like the countervailing pressure of the state that the economy is in, the problems of energy security, mm. which have been unearthed by the course of the past year or so, uh, alongside the obvious democratic pressures which will exist from MPs having their inboxes full up of people who, despite all of the subsidies which and the support schemes which have been laid out, will still be struggling to pay their energy bills. It, sp- it speaks to just how aloof politicians, and particularly this eco-agenda, is from ordinary people that nevertheless... It's the environmentalism that always wins out when they're yeah. having a conversation. Right, let's shift the levies over to the to the gas bills to try and force people to get rid of their combi boilers. You know, it's, it's um, widely accepted that gas boilers are much more efficient at heating people's homes, and yet yeah. and the alternatives in the forms of heat pumps, which have proven very unpopular, are wildly expensive and worse at doing the job. So. Yeah colder and poorer is what mm. is being sold to them so i just i find it so fascinating that what we used to call bread and butter issues or even when, when we're constantly talking about the cost of living again it has to come second yeah to this agenda it can't even be paused yeah. <laughs> it can't even take a few years off yeah it's got to be accelerated it's got to be accelerated and that is telling i think i mean it's interesting because the new sort of line from the government is that net zero is actually going to increase our energy security mm. and it's going to make our bills cheaper. It's going to make everyone more attractive. It's gonna, it's gonna yeah. 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 <laughs> give, give women bigger boobies, as Boris Johnson once said about voting Tory. But, I mean, we know this is just rubbish because it's not like green energy has never been tried before. We have quite a lot of it and we can tell from experience that it isn't working. You know, the, the brutal fact is that when the wind doesn't blow and when the sun doesn't shine, we come perilously close to running out of electricity. Even we had that experience last year where we had to spend more than 5,000% the normal price for electricity just to ensure we didn't get a blackout. Those problems are only going to get worse if we carry down, if we carry on down this net zero path. And yet the government is kind of saying the opposite is going to happen. We're going to be more secure because we're going to be making energy in Britain. We're going to have cheaper energy because it's all going to come from the wind, forgetting all the time when the wind doesn't blow. I mean, what do you make of that kind of turn? And I, I mean, it's just, how, yeah. do they, how do they think they can get away with it? Well, I mean, they do get away with it because, I mean, even in a lot of the mainstream media discussion, it is very much a fait accompli. You know, mm. there isn't um, these difficult questions that are asked and there, there is a lot of dishonesty um, in the debate. And I mean, even on the government's or successive government's own terms that they they have, made it more difficult for us um, to actually have uh, diversities of of energy supply. I mean, there's a video that did the rounds um, several months ago of Nick Clegg um, when he was um, in government uh, a decade ago, so in, in 2011, saying, well, he was quite proud of essentially stopping the building of a new nuclear power station <laughs> because it's going to take 10 years so i mean it just shows the the short termism doing elevating what is politically expedient over what would actually secure the long-term future and energy security um of the country and and it's continuing to go on i mean as you mentioned when the wind isn't blowing when the sun isn't shining then we don't have energy but actually the other options that aren't even 
um, coal and oil, such as nuclear, um, and even fracking. Yeah. You know, even in the north of England, in, in Yorkshire, we're kind of sitting on um, you know, huge potential reserves, but that have been completely stopped by uh, certain environmental activists, which would have provided amazing kind of high quality, high paid, high skilled jobs, brought wealth and opportunities to an area and would have created so much plentiful energy um, for huge sections of the country. And that has actually been partly responsible for what has brought down carbon emissions in America, which has been fracking. So the, the other options even that would even get us closer to different energy sources are being stopped as well. And and so it, it just seems to be an attack on ordinary people on, on all ends for a lack of dishonesty. And fundamentally, the principle that should guide is cheap, plentiful, reliable. And if it is cleaner, you know, that's also a plus. But ultimately, we have to um, exist in the modern world. We have to be able to have energy that that powers our lives and if we don't have that then that is a, a world of darkness um and destruction yeah you know so actually all of these activists kind of painting a picture of this terrible world um if we don't rapidly go towards their particular narrow direction they're actually making it more likely for us to live in a miserable um world that that people cannot actually live flourishing, positive lives. Um, and so at the very least, we should have much more honesty about the reality and not these kind of slogans and grandstanding. Yeah, definitely. And and Tom, finally, I mean, something has got to give. In some places um, in Europe, I'm thinking things are, you know, cracking up. If you think about the Netherlands, the Dutch farmers are not only out there protesting, but they've won a huge electoral victory recently. Mm-hmm. That's connected to net zero. I mean, we haven't even had that discussion here in Britain about how they're going to um, rein in agricultural emissions. But, you know, this nitrogen law that has got them um, angry is a net zero product. Mm-hmm. Something surely will bubble up or flare up. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's got to have political consequences when yeah. you see that at the ballot box or whether you see it on the, the streets i mean it's something which is easy to forget about the gilets jaunes as well yeah. in, in france i mean that was in response to again punishing green laws and taxes this was something that immediately impacts upon a certain section of society who rely on these supposedly dinosaur forms of transportation and so on to keep the country running and they're not going to take that lying down mm. i mean and also because of the fact that the green agenda seems to target the nuts and bolts of people's lives like being able to cheaply run a car being able to go about your own business um even being able to you know drive around your own neighborhood relatively easily all of these things are kind of part and parcel of this particular agenda which i think is bound to cause some sort of pushback at some point the difficulty is is that on the one hand we don't have that kind of culture in in britain of of protests that you have in france or elsewhere Uh, and also the electoral options are you know almost zero in terms of an alternative to red vote blue get green every single time and i think that's one thing which um, might stem a rebellion or make it a little bit more difficult for some time, but it's certainly not going to see off forever. I think, if anything, in the absence of any alternatives and as the cost of net zero on ordinary people is going to be felt more and more, it's just going to store up more and more anger, which is going to find expression somewhere or another at some point in time. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website. 
which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.